Let's get into the Word of God. Um, you know, if we were to ask the question, what is Christmas all about? I know we'd get a, a whole host of, of different answers. I'm sure there'd be some people who would say, you know, right off the bat, it's about gifts, about giving gifts. And as you get older, it seems to be more about buying gifts, right? <laughs> Others would say it's about family. Um, I've heard people say it's about TV specials. I think it sounds like the 1980s, you know. Uh, some for it's travel, Christmas cards, of course, Santa Claus, Frosty, Rudolph, the whole hosts of characters. Many would say food. We had a family gathering at our house last night. I, I, I've never seen so many cookies in one place in my life. <laughs> Just cookies upon cookies upon cookies. But listen, we're here tonight. We know what Christmas is about, right? It's about our Lord and Savior being born into this world. I'm going to read our text, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we want to look at this passage tonight. We want to look at why Jesus came, how he came, and what that means for those who have put their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And if you haven't put your trust into him as Lord and Savior, I'm hoping that tonight you will consider him. And tonight you would even make that decision to call out to Jesus Christ and ask him to be the Lord of your life. Now notice again, Galatians 4.4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this implies here that something happened to cause God to send forth his son, to move him to send forth his son. And obviously, is it saying when the fullness of time had come, Things happen, again, prior to this time, and I want to start by talking about that. I think if we just jumped in here and talked about the fullness of time and Him coming, you know what, we really wouldn't be looking at this in its right context. We need to look at what happened to move God the Father to send His Son into this world. And to do this, we actually want to go all the way back to Genesis. And so, if you have your Bibles, or the Scriptures will be up here if you want to Write them down if you're a note taker. Genesis chapter one, we see that God created the earth and over six days he, you know what, it created the stars, the sun, the moon, the beast of the field, the vegetation and so forth. And we see that on day six that the Lord created man. And let's read it together there. Genesis 1:26. then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And listen, I know that every time, just about every time there's a proclamation that God created man in his image, it seems like there's always someone that says, well, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. You know, they'll instead say something, well, I, I would rather go with the, we're the product of something coming out of nothing. Others may say, well, I believe that order and everything that we see around here came out of a random explosion. And I always ask, well, what exploded that brought forth this order and everything that we see. 
Others will lean on, you know, give it enough time and bring in enough slime and anything is possible. But again, the question comes up, well, where did that slime come from? Others say, well, I believe a protozoan finally came out of that slime. Remember junior high science, protozoans and amoebas, those one-celled animals. You know, that protozoan came along with the DNA of a protozoan and it had a random DNA upgrade, kind of like, you know, those updates you get on your iPhone and so forth. You know, with all this new information, to become a two-celled animal. And I asked the question, where did that information come from? I don't really see DNA upgrades, though I think all of us would agree there's a lot of DNA downgrades in the world today. You know, we're living in perilous times. We need God's grace and mercy. And others would say, you know what, I believe my mother's mother's mother was an ape, if you go back far enough. And then you really get this fringe group that say, you know what, no, I got the answer, aliens. And I say, quit watching the History Channel. You know, they're, <laughs> they're lying to you. But listen, if you do believe any of that, if you're holding on to that, if that's your hope, something, you know what, came from nothing, we're the product of this information that we don't know where it came from, and though these things are just theories with nothing that holds them back, if you really, really believe that, I, you know what, I congratulate you because you have more faith than most folks in this room. Listen to what Jesus Christ says about creation. This is what Jesus says. In Matthew 10, 6, Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's what Jesus said. I think Jesus knows more than our modern day philosophers with these modern theories that men come up really in an effort to not try to determine where we came from, but absolutely to suppress the truth that the Lord created us and made us. And listen, we're going somewhere with this, but I absolutely want to give it the attention that it deserves. Listen to what the scripture says about this idea of worshiping the creation and men coming, you know what, through the process of evolution and so forth. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Notice what it says, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the idea of there being a God and having to give an account to him, men flee from that. They run from that when they don't want to repent, when they don't want to acknowledge their sin. And so the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. It says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And so we see God absolutely created man. Through creation, we see that there is a creator. The evidence abound all around us, and we even see that God has manifest that knowledge of him in every man's heart. We're told that the Holy Spirit convicts all men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yet so many men rage against it, suppressing truth and unrighteousness because they know, they know they're going to give an account to their maker. 
And who can enjoy their sin? Who can enjoy their rebellion when they know that day is going to come? When they're going to give an account? And unfortunately, many men and many folks that take that pursuit eventually come to that place where they so harden their heart, they don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit anymore. And they go along in the darkness and in the deception that they are under. So absolutely, God made man. He put Adam and Eve in that garden, and he gave them one law. There was one law or rule that he gave to them in that garden, this beautiful place called Edom that he created. Notice Genesis 2, 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just one law. You can do anything that you want in this garden. This would be like me saying, listen, I'm, I'm going out of town for a month, and you can come stay in my home. You can do anything you want in there. You can eat all the food. You can, you know what, take naps on the couch. You can even kick holes in the wall if you want. Do whatever you want. Just don't wear my lucky socks. That's it. Anything you want, you just, just don't wear my lucky socks. And I, I know, listen, I'm not trying to make a theological statement and saying there's lucky socks, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Anything you want but that. And here God put man and woman in this garden, a place of paradise. Do anything, but if you do this, you're going to die. The word death here, it implies separation. He was saying, listen, if you eat of that tree physically, you're going to begin to die. And spiritually, death will come in. You'll be separated from the giver of life, God Almighty. Well, we know. And again, remember, we're setting up what happened to cause God to send forth his son. Let's remember that. Well, we read in Genesis 3 what came next. It says here, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, see, the enemy always attacks the word of truth, the word of God. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. Actually, God never said that, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, notice what he said, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed, sewed leaves together and made for themselves covering. And what this is implying, it wasn't just that they knew physically that they were naked. They knew they were no longer under that banner of God's grace. They were no longer in right relationship with God. And immediately they began to make in their own efforts a way to cover up their sin. And sadly, many are still doing that today, trying to, in their own efforts to cover up their sins. But it doesn't get the job done. Man fell. Indeed, death came in. And man took on what's called a sin nature. And it's been passed down to every one of us in this room. Notice Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sin. So we can thank Adam for that tonight. 
Why is this world in the state that it's in? In part because in the garden, again, man said, listen, I'll be my own God. I don't need you to rule over me. I'm going to listen to this serpent. I'm going to question the word of God as he's questioning God's word. I'm not going to stand in truth. And immediately, listen, God's not a liar. Immediately when man ate of that tree, death set in and man took on a sin nature and it's been spread to all men. When man ate of that tree, listen, he forfeited dominion that God gave to him. Remember we read that. He forfeited that over to the wicked one. It's interesting, in Matthew 4, when Jesus did come to the earth, Satan tempted him at one point with all of the kingdoms and the earth. And he said, listen, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things. And Jesus didn't refute him by saying, listen, those aren't yours to give away. Instead, he said, the word says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we are of God, speaking of those with faith in Christ. But he goes on to say, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so again, man, when he ate of that tree, took on a sin nature. He was spiritually separated from God and he forfeited dominion to the enemy. And men to this day, outside of Christ, absolutely, they are under the sway of the enemy. And he wants to keep people in that place. He wants to keep them in that place of not coming to trust in the Lord, not wanting them to repent to turn from their sin, to humble their heart and call on their maker. And as the wages of that sin was death then, again, eventually Adam and Eve died a natural death and they were separated spiritually from the Lord. The same is true today. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And listen, if you pass from this life to the next not knowing Christ, the word of God speaks of a second death. An eternal separation from God Almighty. This is serious here. Again, death in this life, listen, it, it ultimately goes back to man's sin in the garden. Man's the one that said, we'll do things our own way. And God said, if you do this, death's going to set in. But if men stay in that place, Jesus talked about hell and 13% of his teachings, do you realize that? 13% of Jesus' teachings were about hell. They were about hell because he wants no one to go there. But if men die in that place because of sin, again, there is a second death. Revelation 20, 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in to the lake of fire. And so again, man was created. Man was put in that garden. Man was given one law. Don't eat of this tree. If you do, you're going to die. Man was tempted. He ate of that tree. Death set in. And God could have left man in that place with no hope, with no future. But see, he's a God of great grace and great mercy. Yes, he is a God of judgment and a God of wrath, but a God of great grace and great mercy and a God of great love. And God intervened. In Genesis 3.15, he was speaking to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures. He says, listen, through the seed of this woman, a savior is going to come. And when he comes to this earth, indeed, you will bruise his heel, but this savior of the world is going to crush your head. What an awesome statement. Later on, there were more prophecies given concerning this Savior and how he would come. 
Isaiah 7.14, several hundred years before Christ was born, God prophesied through the prophet, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God made this prophecy very clear. Again, through the seed of woman. And then here in Isaiah, through a virgin, a virgin would conceive. Who's ever heard of a virgin conceiving? So what was he speaking of? He was speaking of the Holy Spirit overshadowing a young woman whom the Lord would use to bring forth his son, a woman of God, a woman who was a sinner like us, who knew she needed a savior, yet a woman with faith in the Lord and faith in that savior to come. And so Christ would come as the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. And indeed, he would be born the son of man, because to save men, you need another man to save men, and absolutely the son of God, because he had to come without that sin nature, that sin nature we talked about that all of us are born with. See, if Jesus was born with that sin nature, he too would be a sinner, and we needed a perfect savior, not another sinner. Another sinner can't save us. There were prophecies about where we'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be descended of Abraham, of Judah, and David, that he would come in a time of great darkness, and indeed, Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. And then God also gave laws. There were more laws after man ate of that tree. Many laws given. Israel had over 600 laws given to them as a nation. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments that God has given to us, and God gave us those laws. See, we're already sinners, we're already lost. So why do we need more laws if we already know that? Well, God gave those laws to show them and to show us we are those sinners who need a Savior. That's why the law was given. That's why the law, again, is still intact today to show us that we need a Savior. God wants to save us. He wants to see men come to faith in Jesus Christ. And again, through creation, we know there is a creator. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through prophecy fulfilled, Jesus fulfilling over 300 himself in his life, the odds of it astronomical, and then God giving us the law to show us that we are law breakers. Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Notice verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The law shows us we're sinners. We've all transgressed it. It shows us that we need a Savior because make no mistake, God's standard isn't you kind of, you know what, hit the mark or you did okay. God's standard is absolutely perfection. He is a holy God. Remember, sin brings death. One sin in the garden separated man from God. Death came in. God will not bring death into his eternal kingdom. He won't bring it in there. So he gave the law to show us that we're sinners. 1 Timothy 1.8, listen to what this says. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. And we'll see in a minute One that's right before God is one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, the unholy, profane, 
for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And notice what it says. If there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, any of those areas we transgressed his law, it is given to show us that we are sinners. That's what the law is for. To show us that we need a savior. This is why the enemy is working so hard to get the Ten Commandments. Again, out of the public arena. Out of a courthouse. Out of our, again, our, our schools and so forth. He doesn't want the law there. Because he knows it will convict people and show them that they are sinners. Now, we know there's another side of this. People look along and say, I'll fulfill that law and be good enough. And that's another lie he uses. But absolutely, it shows people that they are sinners. And he doesn't want it around. And so here's fallen man. Again, God created him. He listened to that serpent. Death set in. He gave the promise of that Savior to come. And he realized the time will come when God will send that Savior. And listen, the bulk of the Old Testament in a nutshell is this. Them looking and looking and looking. Generation after generation after generation. Is this the Savior? Is this the Savior? Is the Savior going to come? And indeed, they were saved by faith in that Savior to come. But listen, that Savior still needed to come to fulfill their faith. Otherwise, they had no hope. In the Old Testament, this is why, again, the Word of God is so powerfully knit together, even though there's all these various authors writing at different times in the Old and the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, in different places and so forth, the one theme that brings it together is man needs a Savior. And they were looking. It's interesting because Adam and Eve, they had a son soon after this, and they named him Cain. And it's interesting because Eve takes Cain to Adam and says, listen, a man, the man's been born to me. And it's, it's kind of a declaration of, I think this is the Savior. Well, she was way off with that one, wasn't she? I think this might be the Christ. Try Antichrist. You know, what he, he, no, he, he's not the Christ. It was, a, again, a, a big whiff. And think of, think of Abraham, you know, and, and there's so many pictures of this, but the flood comes, then afterwards, God wants to separate a people to himself, so he calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham, again, he's close to 100 years old, his wife is 90 years old, she's been barren her whole life, and yet God does a miracle, and he opens her womb, and he rejuvenates them. It was almost like, again, it, it, it was a miracle that God touched them that they were able to conceive and Isaac came forth and they thought maybe this is the savior and they went to the point where God said well, are you willing to take him up here on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him and Abraham again he told the young man we're going up and we'll come down because Abraham understood the gospel he understood a savior was going to come and he was going to be bruised but that savior would crush the serpent in his resurrection and he went up there to the top of the mountain and he had the sacrifice laid out and God said stop and just as Cain was a big whiff, I would have to think when God told Abraham, stop, it was a big relief. Though he had faith that God would resurrect him, if indeed he was the Savior. And the list goes on and on, and it's amazing, all these miracle babies and so forth. We've been reading about Moses on Wednesday night in our study in Exodus, a great forerunner of the Lord in the sense that he was a type of Christ and that he delivered his people. And we know there was a miracle when he was saved from the Nile. You look at King David and his ancestry and 
Ruth, who was a Gentile, who had faith enough to leave her land, to go to a new land, knowing she needed a savior, and the Lord gave her a child, who had a child, and David came forth. John the Baptist, his mother was barren and older in age, and God absolutely opened her womb, and another miracle baby, and he wasn't the Christ, but he was the forerunner, and he went forth to tell people, repent, the Savior is coming, but none of those were the right time, but when the fullness of time came, as we look here in Genesis 4-4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and his son indeed was sent forth at the right time, and his name is Jesus Christ. In God's perfect time, the pre-appointed time, Jesus came. Now listen, his time is always the right time, amen? He's never too early, and he's never too late. And we need to remember that because we always want God to be on our time, but his time's better than our time. He sent forth his son, and Jesus indeed came to do the will of his father. Notice John 6, 38. Listen to what Jesus said. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And all this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't that glorious? That was the will of the Father. The will of the Father was to send his Son to make a way of salvation. God the Father sent God the Son. Some people get confused about this. They say, well, is Jesus God? Well, do any of you have children in the room here? I think some of us do, right? And you're a human being, right? And you have a son, and well, you're like, well, he's a teenager, so I don't know if he's a human being or or what he is, but (laughs) this is very simple math. Listen, God sent his son. God the Father sent God the Son. And indeed, he sent them so that we could have a way of everlasting life, so that we could be raised up. And for us to be raised up, he had to be raised up. But to be raised up from the dead, he had to lay down his life. Notice here again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And God took on the form of a man. And Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man. I know it's very popular today being taught in different circles um, you know what, you get up Bethel music and these people, they teach Jesus quit being God when he was on earth. Some biblical, that's a false Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's not take away from who he is. And indeed, he came at the perfect time. Let's read the account of it. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found of a child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and these shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's what Christmas is about. God sent forth his son, Emmanuel. 
a way to make that way of salvation to save us from our sins. Notice again, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son, born of a woman. Notice here, born under the law. Remember, man broke the law. We're all lawbreakers. The law shows us that we fall short of God's glory. But Jesus came born under the law. This is amazing. God Almighty, to make a way to save us, came down, took on the form of a man, and went under the law. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Hebrews 4, 15 says he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, and though it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice, Jesus did what the law could not do. The law could not save us. And if you're here tonight saying, I'm going to be a law keeper, I'm going to be good enough. The law cannot save you. The law condemns you. This is a room full of liars. I didn't come here to be insulted like that. You're a liar and so am I. Can we be real about it? Let's go down the list. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. If you hate in your heart, you're a murderer. If you don't honor your father and mother, listen, there's parents here. We'll start asking questions. <laughs> the law cannot save us. The law shows us that we are sinners. That's why God gave it. But Jesus did what the law could not do. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus did not sin. He was tempted at every point. Think of the law, the, so, the sin that so easily ensnares you, and I know you got one because the Bible says that you do. Jesus did not sin when he was tempted with that sin that easily ensnares you, with the sins that easily ensnare me. He was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He was born without a sin nature to come to save those who are born with a sin nature who needed that Savior. That's why he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes with the Father but by me because no one else has fulfilled the law. Notice verse 5 there in Galatians, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons he went under the law to keep the law to redeem those under the law the word redeem here it means to purchase out of slavery again when man sinned he came under the bondage of sin he became a a a a, a slave to sin and satan and to death but jesus came again to redeem those that were under the law so that they might be adopted by God. And again, man that was separated now would come into a place of being reunited with God and right standing and right relationship with him. It's awesome because the word here, redeem, it doesn't just mean to purchase out of bondage, but basically it means to purchase out of bondage with a guarantee you will never be put up on the block to be auctioned off as a slave again. Listen to what Galatians 3.10 says. For as many as are of the works of the law, are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Did you hear that? If you say, well, I keep part of the law, so I'm kind of good. The Bible says you're cursed unless you keep it all every day of your life. 
Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. The acknowledgement, I'm a sinner. I've done my own thing. I put trust in my own self. You know what? The God of my own belly. And whatever we're pursuing, that's what our God is. All of us have one. It's coming to that point of acknowledging our sin and acknowledging that Jesus lived a sinless life. He went to the cross of Calvary to take the wrath due me. He was buried in the grave and he defeated it three days later when he rose from the grave and he defeated sin, death, and Satan that all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Is that not awesome? That we might receive the adoption of the sons it means to receive the full rights of a son. You gotta understand in the Greek culture, an adopted son actually had more rights than a natural born son, do you know that? So no one went around saying, you know, to tease a little brother, you're adopted. They're like, oh, I'll take that. I got more rights than you, yeah. Because if that pledge was made to that child, there were certain things that were pledged to him that cannot be taken away that you could take away from your naturally born child. We receive, again, full rights, adopted. Notice verse 6, and because you are sons, this is in Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Is that you tonight? Can you say amen to that? If you can't, maybe you're saying, well, what's required of me? I want this. I know I need to be saved. I know I'm a lawbreaker. Maybe tonight you've heard for the first time that, listen, doing more good than bad is not going to save you. That's a false gospel. God's standards perfection. That's not going to save you. I want to read to you what Jesus said in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And what this is implying here is not saying, oh, I believe Jesus was a historical figure. Believing here means you've trusted in him to be your Lord. It means that you have repented. You have acknowledged, listen, this is what I'm putting trust in. This way that I'm going cannot save me. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus to be the Lord of my life. This is why Jesus went forth preaching for men to repent and to believe in the gospel. Really, they go hand in hand. And saying, I'm going to turn from whatever my faith is in to put my faith in him to be my savior. I believe that he died on the cross and rose from the grave and I want him to be the Lord of my life. That is the gospel message and that is why Jesus Christ came. Let's stand up and we're going to close in prayer and we're going to close with one last worship song to the Lord and I would pray that we can lift our voices to him and give him the praise due him. But if you're here tonight and you have not 
called upon the name of Jesus Christ, I would hope at the minimum you would consider that which you have heard. I would hope that you would not say, okay, well, that was interesting. Now I'm going to go on with my life. Because listen, this might be the one opportunity that you get to call on his name. I would hate for you to leave here and harden your heart. Harden your ears to the voice of the Spirit of God. And we don't know what tomorrow holds. And people say, oh, Steve, don't preach like that. You're going to scare people. Don't talk about hell. You're going to scare people. Listen, our knees should buckle when we think about hell and how short our life is. That's a healthy fear of God. And many a man and many a woman have called out on Christ because of a fear of God, realizing I need to be right with my maker. Call on him. Humble your heart. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. You've heard the gospel. Now what will you do with it? And listen, if you respond to the gospel tonight, at the end of the service, there'll be some prayer counselors up here. You're welcome And in fact, I'd encourage you to come up and pray with one of them. We will let them put a Bible in your hands. But listen, go and tell somebody. Go and tell somebody that you put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Begin reading the Word of God. Begin to talk to Him in prayer. And I would encourage you to get plugged in with other people who love Him, that are studying His Word. And you're absolutely invited to come do that here. Though it's not about Refuge Church, it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you tonight, God. We give you glory. And we thank you for who you are. Oh, we thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for willingly coming into this world, living that sinless life, dying on the cross for us, and the victory that you brought over sin, death, and Satan. Let us rejoice in you. Lord, if there's any here that don't know you, Lord, I would pray, God, that this gospel truth would not get snatched out of their heart as soon as they leave this place, but you would water it, God, that you would draw them to you. And Lord, if there's any even calling on you right now, meet them where they are. As we read there, you said you would send the spirit of your son into their hearts. We would pray, Lord, that that would be the case even right now. So, Lord, we want to give you the glory to you. Lord, we want to lift our voices to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship our Lord.
Amen. Well, again, the altar will be open up here. I'm going to ask the ushers to grab some Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible tonight as a gift to you. And so find one of those guys out there in the foyer and they'll put that in your hands. And again, God bless you. I pray you have a wonderful night and a wonderful Christmas in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is good.